0: I don't know if I'm happy with my seating position. Oh, for God's sake! You can you've you... moved the rocking chair. I think it's the spite. No,
1: I me. didn't move the rocking chair. The rocking chair was moved in order to spite me. Sell the house. All oh, right. Essentially, so the
0: keystone of the sale. No, no. I... I like this room, but does the rocking chair have to be there?
1: I, it was set up by M um, for best advantage for people viewing the property, mm. and I'm not going to argue with it.
0: Do you just sit there doing your podcast?
1: in the corner? No, I've not been in for them. I'm not allowed to be here.
0: Oh, you go for a walk?
1: No, I'm generally picking up the kids or I'm off doing the shopping or something. There are reasons. It's not like, and Joe's going to leave now, aren't you, Joe?
0: Yeah.
1: Bye.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love you. You'd always just pass them at the front door.
1: Yeah. All right.
0: You go, I'll be in touch. (laughs) Just play that game. You just act like a a bidding rival. (laughs) Oh, this! what a beautiful house. I mean, I'm going to call Jeremy right now. I'm going to put in an offer. Oh, hello.
1: Yeah, we're going to, we're going to just have to bite the bullet and give them what they're asking. They've so undervalued it. It's a steal. Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote, and this is Consistently Eccentric, a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with... This story begins during the reign of Louis XV known to the people of France as Louis the Well-Beloved. Is he a good one? Well, he came after Louis the Fourteenth, the Sun King, so he had quite the... Uh, it, it was a tough act to follow. The longest reigning European monarch there's ever been.
0: Is there always an excitement, though, for a new monarch? I know we haven't experienced one yet in our lifetime, but I feel like...
1: Oh. Yeah, it's just a change, change up, because most of the people would... Definitely have only known Louis the Fourteenth. you know, and this is people in the 60s and 70s potentially still would only have really known Louis. So, my
0: point is, you know, when the, the Queen turned up, mm. <laughs> you know, out the wilderness
1: yeah, in the 50s, yeah,
0: but it was like the whole country felt young,
1: yeah, because she was a young queen, so, young queen, dang, yeah, hick, yeah, all these boomers and being then, born. It's now like we are.
0: And it felt the same again in the nineties for some reason. Like a young Prime Minister, relatively. It felt like we were young again. <laughs> I felt I feel like if um what's his chops not Charles but his son. William. If William was to come to power next month, we might feel a bit young. Oh know, optimism.
1: Like, My old friend. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> Sorry, I've interrupted in the first sentence.
1: It's okay. So we're in the reign of Louis the Fifteenth, yeah. The well-beloved. Because on December the 1st, 1761, a little girl called Anna-Maria Grosholz was born in Strasbourg, France. Her mother was also called Anna-Maria, so to differentiate between the two, the little girl became known as Marie. What year is this? 1761. Thank you. In
0: 1761?
1: Marie was the name that would stick with her for the rest of her life. Unfortunately for Anna Maria Senior, Louis the well-beloved was definitely not as beloved by the British as he was by the French, with the two nations being in the middle of the Seven Years' War when she conceived Marie. Marie's father, Joseph, had dutifully enlisted in the French army, and he died in one of the 26 major land battles that took place in Europe – as one of nearly 140,000 casualties suffered in the name of empire building in the New World and the Indian subcontinent.
0: It's just like cannons and swords and cavalry. And, yeah. Right. And he was... With guns. We've got muskets. Yeah,
1: anyway. yeah, We had rifles at this point. I mean, he's cannon fodder. He, he, he would not have been mounted cavalry. He would not have been, you know, he'd have been one of those people wearing the blue jackets marching slowly across the battlefield as, you know, cannons were just fired at them. God. It's like, and if you make it there, then you can fight, but most of you are just going to have bits knocked off. Speaking of having bits knocked off as well, prior to his death. He lost he, his genitals to it. A... Well, he had survived an injury. <laughs> right. He'd had his jaw shot off. Fucking hell. Yeah, the lower part of his jaw was just shot off, and he survived that and still went into battle one more time.
0: How do you eat with just the tops, roeity? You know, is it sort of like how you grate a carrot? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You sort of just oh. drag your, your your teeth on the food.
1: Mm. I don't know if he lost all of it or just partial, so he sort of had to lean to one side. And...
0: <laughs>
1: I don't know if he had his tongue. Maybe he just had to put things on his tongue and then... Just like... <laughs> I was there with that noise. Look <laughs> <laughs> <Like it back. laughs> <It's> the face. <laughs> well, I'm trying to imagine how you'd eat without a jaw. You,
0: you're baby birding.
1: <coughs> swallow anyway <laughs> news of joseph's death reached marie's mother when she was seven months pregnant with marie so i have she... news <laughs> i have news sorry it's bad news from my husband well it it concerns your husband <laughs> oh bless her so things weren't they weren't good suddenly needing a job to support herself and her new daughter anna maria with young Marie in tow, began working as a domestic servant. And when Marie was two, the pair moved to Bern in Switzerland to take a position with a twenty-six-year-old doctor called Philippe Curtius. I may have mangled the pronunciation, yeah. but he's definitely a Philippe, not a Philip. Curtius'
0: name, Curtius, <laughs> Curtius' <and> nature.
1: <laughs> I shall ask how you are, and I'll be attentive when you tell me about your day. He's gonna be a shit, isn't he? Well, he wasn't just a doctor. Philippe had also developed a real talent for making anatomical medical models out of wax, because oh, he's got
0: that creepy basement room. Hasn't he? I imagine With all, it all the is. rejects.
1: <laughs> well, it's it's one of those things. At this point, it was getting more difficult to get hold of cadavers for doing um, demonstrations and for doctors to practice on during the training. So. One of the ways around it was, well, we'll make something that looks identical and we can we can talk you through that. And he, he realised it was quite lucrative as well. Uh, initially, he sold these, like I say, for training purposes. But after a while, he also started making wax portraits for local nobles on request. So people were like, oh, it's it's so lifelike. Do you think you could make a, a bust of me? And then, because these are rich people with more money than sense, it quickly devolved into, can you make... My wife's bust for me. Yeah. And other naked lady parts for me. Could you make Could you make a naked woman for me out of wax? Don't ask me what it's <laughs> for, but I'd just like to have one. Mm. You know, for artistic purposes, <laughs> I'm just a patron of the arts. Uh, the naughty statues quickly became his bestseller. Is that what he called them? Uh, no, he called them what are they they were his um no he just called them nudes yeah. his nudes became his bestseller only for the most discerning uh, nobles in switzerland
0: did he know what they were being used for
1: i think yeah he read between the lines so like i think at
0: first when he did his first few nudes he didn't realize
1: he made them completely anatom- anatomically correct and they were like no that's not what we want them for we want we want a fantasy yeah. okay Make something that could not be replicated by nature. Come on, quickly! The growing interest in Philippe's sculpture sideline resulted in a visit in 1765 to view his private collection by the influential French nobleman, the Prince of Conti. I don't know where Conti is. But the Prince of Conti, he was so impressed that he offered to become Philippe's patron on the condition that Philippe gave up on his boring old medical career, moved to Paris, and set up a permanent wax exhibition. Philippe accepted the offer, though apparently he made far more money selling naughty statues to the local Parisian boudoirs than he did from tickets to visit his anatomically correct waxworks. Although this move to Paris initially didn't include Anna Maria and young Marie, within a year, courteous by name, courteous by nature, he'd sent for them, Uh, and the three lived together in an apartment on the Rue Saint-Honoré, Hmm. It's not really known what the real relationship between Anna Maria and Philippe was. Loyal servant, generous. Does master. she have
0: an anatomically correct
1: body? She still has all of her lower jaw. Yes. No. no.
0: <laughs> she hadn't removed it in solidarity. <laughs> Joseph <You're> beautiful Con- <laughs> look.
1: <Lord. laughs> <laughs>
0: No, I mean, has he made port? Is he made a waxwork of
1: her? As far as I know, no, right? He didn't, and it, it was like, was it were they lovers?
0: You'd think if they were lovers that he'd it'd be like an ode to Anne Marie.
1: Mm. But there was even um, some people suggested that actually they were brother and sister, right? And that it was just a case of when she'd taken a job cleaning, it was him sort of, come on. I'll take you in and so that you don't feel like I'm giving you, you know, charity. I'll take you in with a paid position because apparently, aside from cooking, she didn't actually do that much. It, it felt domestically like it was a married couple. Maybe she enjoyed than, the
0: company. Well,
1: possibly as well. Um, what is known though, is that young Marie definitely saw Philippe as a father figure. Someone she idolised and someone she wanted to be like.
0: Ah, it's Madame Tussauds.
1: Well, no, this is Marie Grossholz. Marie was new to Paris, and she was surprised to see that many of the people Philippe made waxworks of for his exhibition were not members of the nobility, but were people who were essentially famous for being famous. The only requirement was that people would pay to see the likeness, and the exhibition had a never-ending rotation of current society beauties, recently convicted criminals, and the artisans, hairdressers, and musicians who are currently in vogue. Right. The changes in who was fashionable could happen so quickly that Philippe would only have time to chop the head off one of his waxworks and replace it with a new likeness rather than creating whole new bodies from scratch. Because, you know, that was how quick fashion changed in Paris at the time. They'd have to
0: make a brand new body for us.
1: Well, because we're tiny people. Yeah.
0: They've got to swap a head. No, he's one of his own.
1: I'm sure he had sort of like stock bodies. He's like, and there's the child's body. We'll get that one out.
0: I know, but you're putting it like a, a man's head on a child's body. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Is that how you see yourself?
1: <laughs> yep, pretty much. Really not. When I'm wearing clothes, you All know, right. I have a man's body under there, but I'm the size of a child. Right. So it seemed natural that Marie would begin training up as his apprentice. He's pushed for time and he needs help wherever he can get it. And there's this willing a young girl who lives in his house rent-free, so she may as well do something to help. She started to learn the whole process, preparing moulds and mixing wax to inserting the finishing touches of glass eyes. And the wick. And real teeth. Yeah. So the eyes were fake because obviously, you know, they would start to spoil, but the teeth are fine. Oh, and you
0: know they're coming off live bodies that just need Yeah, yeah, they
1: were going around the local dentist. That one doesn't look too bad. Can we have... Can we have, um seven molars uh we, we need a few more five incisors and go on just a bag of assorted uh, canines <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh we need a few gold capped have you got any gold capped uh she started doing all of this around the age of 14 so it's quite late really to be starting a career but, oh
0: sorry this is Marie. yeah for that time yeah.
1: of you know we're talking in england it was georgian england so it's quite late to be starting your career Marie, though, she made up for the lost time. She was very quick at learning and was soon producing waxworks good enough that they were included alongside Philippe's own in the exhibitions. Reportedly, the first of these was a waxwork of Voltaire in 1777, when Marie was only 16 years old, Voltaire being alive at the time and a famous French philosopher. Steadily taking on an ever-increasing role in the family business, Marie was earning increasingly more money. She chose to spend this money indulging in all the hedonistic delights that Paris had to offer.
0: Bread, walking, umbrellas.
1: Oh, no, there was, there was loads of stuff going on. With all kinds of spectacles available at all hours of the day, Marie learned the importance of the Barker to drum up business and suggested to Philippe that they hire a very fat man called Paul Butterbrodt. <laughs> Though, as far as I know, they never made a waxwork of Paul Butterbrodt because not, it not would just cost in the world it would just cost too much <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah he was known as the world's fattest man <laughs> so he was he, he was definitely you know Paris's fattest man at the time the 24 hour availability of amusements definitely had a lasting impression on marie who wrote to a friend i'm My af- head is spinning now this is quite modern i'm afraid of being bored and i'm afraid of myself to escape this obsession i need movement and noise So basically, I'm so full of existential angst, I need distraction at all times.
0: Until I'm 28, I've come to terms with it.
1: Unfortunately for Marie and Philippe, it became more and more difficult to convince punters to spend their hard-earned money as the 1780s dawned.
0: As you could literally watch a man fight a bear. (laughs) Well, you probably could. (laughs) For Uh, two
1: francs. (laughs) But it was mainly due to the lower classes of French society paying the price for a century of massive population growth when the amount of French citizens ballooned from 18 million to 26 million. What, in a couple of years? Well, it was over the course of a century, but it was the infrastructure, the farming practices, everything else was not keeping up pace with this massive population boom. And it had also not been matched by employment opportunities. (laughs) So you had increasing amounts of unemployed people um, and there was no more food being produced because... Everyone else had been getting into sort of more industrialised farming practices and sort of we're going to increase crop yields. And the French were like, no, 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 this is the way we do things. Mm-hmm. We have enough people to do these things and we're just going to keep churning out perfect baguettes.
0: They are pretty good,
1: aren't they? They're, they're brilliant, but you need a lot of them. And they were going for quality over quantity in the 1780s, which was a, a bit of a misstep. Things reached ahead after food prices had increased by 65%.
0: It's kind of like now.
1: Well, <laughs> Are we going that way? It meant that the cost of bread was now approximately half of a working class person's wage each week. Fuck. Yeah. And that's you've got nothing to go on that bread. You've spent half of your money and you literally have the bread. You don't have the butter. You don't have a nice slice of ham. Yeah. You don't have a nice sweet pickle to put on that.
0: No jambon blanc?
1: No. No jambon blanc.
0: <laughs> what about a chocolate chard? <laughs> I said that to a Frenchman.
1: Chocolate chod. Yeah. Co- oh, a chocolat show.
0: Yeah. My dad's Hot like, chocolate. No, you've got to order. Um, I'll have a, a jambon blanc and a chocolate And
1: <laughs> He went, right, you're not ordering it ever again. He's yeah. asking in French, is, is your child simple? <laughs> Was he dropped on his head? Yes, yes. but that's totally unrelated to this. <laughs> this, you know, it meant that there were... There was never a decreasing amount of people who could spend money on anything other than the bare, bare basics. And a wax exhibition does not class in your essentials. As a result, they had to change tack and their exhibition became more and more focused on attracting the upper classes due to the fact that the nobility were not actually expected to pay taxes in France at the time. Uh, So they were able to continue to spend extravagantly on entertainment. Holy fuck. Well, you had the three estates and... The nobles were supposed to ensure the rights of everyone else by fighting, should the need arise. So they were the people who go and do the fighting. The second estate was the clergy, and they looked after your soul. They, they were doing all the spiritual work. And then you had the third estate, which was the working classes, and their job was to... Pay for everything. Yeah, basically foot That's the tab. backwards, isn't it? Well, you'd think so, but no, it was working in France fine, and I'm sure it's going to continue working.
0: So this is the, like the beginnings of the revolution...
1: No, uh, he's the well-beloved. Everything's going great.
0: No, but is that what it was? Like, they just got fucked over. I know nothing about French history.
1: We're going to go a little bit into it.
0: Where's the English history?
1: We'll we'll get to
0: it. Oh, you've run out of English stories. James May was born.
1: (laughs) (laughs) This readjustment to focus on the creme de la creme of society led to an amazing break for young Mary Grossholtz in around 1780 when she was asked to become an art tutor for none other than the youngest sister of the king himself, 16-year-old Elizabeth Philippe Marie-Hélène of France. Elizabeth was apparently a very devout young girl who wanted to learn to make true-to-life models of religious relics and people, though I am sure that any statues she did make of Jesus were were white. Yeah.
0: They're not just grey, aren't they? They were very, you just know. clay coloured.
1: No, we're Catholic at this point, so I'm guessing, yeah. You know. Catholic. Catholic. The French were very Catholic. So it would be the traditional Catholic Jesus, you know. Catholic Jesus. Alabaster skin, <laughs> nut brown, long flowing locks, blue eyes. Yeah, ripped. Oh, yeah. Chiseled Jesus. Yeah. Um,
0: See, there's a point where you've got to, when you're doing sculpture like that, and you are a devout Christian, not, mm. but you have to make a choice as the artist how much bulge to put under the loincloth. Because mm. you've got to create that. You can't give him none um, or yeah. ignore it. So at some point you've got to go.
1: Or you can just go for a sort of baggy loincloth and just leave it. Is that the bulge or is that just a, you know, fold in the fabric? I'll never tell. Yeah. In her perfect life, she would likely have chosen to become a nun. But you're not allowed to do that if you're the sister of the king. And she, although she didn't manage to become a nun, she did never marry, despite several good matches being proposed, including one to José, Prince of Brazil. Wow. He was actually Portuguese, but what a way to be able to introduce yourself. I'm José, Prince of Brazil. (laughs) Have you ever been? (laughs) No. (laughs) But they send me many fine pieces of gold.
0: (laughs) They say I'm doing a really good job.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They say they love me. Marie's relationship with Elizabeth rapidly developed over just a few months until the two young women had become so close that she was invited to become a living tutor slash confidante. She moved into the Palace of Versailles itself in order that she could be available whatever the hour, day or night. So if at 2am Elizabeth had a hankering to go and do some sculpting. Never happened. Marie was there waiting for her. Yes, let's do it. That's just teenage excitement. Yeah, we could
0: do art at any time of day. I then mean, the day to day, it's like they don't do any, and no. then they do a bit on a Saturday.
1: <laughs> but they have the they have the option. Yeah, yeah, That's what's exciting. Over the next eight years, Marie Grossholtz found herself in the epicenter of court life. Due to her closeness to the king's sister, she was able to witness firsthand how Louis the Because we moved on now, Louis the Fifteenth gone. We're on to Louis the Sixteenth who was not known as the well-beloved, was unable to stand up to his decadent wife, Marie Antoinette. Mm. How the court became ever more detached from the realities of the French people, and ultimately how this led to the downfall of the monarchy at the hands of bloodthirsty revolutionaries. She recalled at least one occasion when the king literally begged Marie Antoinette to stop spending quite so much money on lavish parties. Marie Antoinette refused, and the king, knowing he was powerless to rein her in, responded with a fatalistic then let the games go on. That's quoted. That is quoted. Because he was just like, fine, you keep partying, see where that gets us. He's, he's hateable, isn't he? I think he's just a little bit weak. That's what I mean, he's hateable. And he's also surrounded by people who, he's going, is this causing us trouble? You know, I'm I'm trying my best. And I go, no, no, no. The people are fine with it.
0: But he's always the last one on the dance floor. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Marie was 27 in early 1789 when the people of Paris finally got bored of the game that Marie Antoinette and the other members of the First and Second Estates were playing and decided it was high time to change those rules. Philippe, who had contacts throughout the Parisian social strata, became aware of the shifting mood and he asked Marie to return home from Versailles in order to keep her safe. A few months later, on July 12th, 1789, an angry mob arrived at the door of Philippe Curtius's waxworks on the Boulevard du Temple. Though Marie initially thought that they were going to ransack the place with its depictions of both the king and queen, as well as other key figures at court, the crowd rather politely insisted that Philippe hand over the bus of Jacques Necker, the finance minister and hero of the people who had just been sacked by the king, and the Duc Orleans who had been strongly advocating for the rights of the working class. Philippe wisely handed over the busts, seeing it as an opportunity for free publicity. He did, however, refuse to give them the model of the king, arguing that due to it being a full-body model, it would fall apart quite quickly if they tried to carry it aloft. It is likely that he also didn't want the association with his waxworks if the crowd chose to hang or burn the model in a mock execution. Right. So he's like, I'll give you, I'll give you the working-class heroes, but I'm not giving you the king.
0: Because it'll fall apart. And they are like, oh, yeah, that makes yeah, sense.
1: So, well, yeah, thanks. Thank I mean, we'd have got embarrassed. You know, yeah. we're five metres down the road and it's... We were just
0: going to stamp on it, but we don't want it <laughs> falling apart on the way.
1: Yeah, we, we we decide when it gets destroyed. In the event, the two busts were carried by the crowd of men into the place Louis... <laughs> the place,
0: place Louis lived. <laughs>
1: <laughs> into the Place Louis the Fifteenth, <laughs> Right. Place Louis XV, where they were confronted You're by... You're really
0: trying to French that up yeah. and find it impossible.
1: Into the Place Louis XV, <laughs> where they were confronted by Royalist cavalry. The cavalry decided to open fire before charging in with swords, and the first blood of the French Revolution was spilt. Amazingly, the bust of Necker was later returned by a member of the Swiss Guards to the waxworks. It had cinched hair and a couple of sabre wounds, (laughs) so someone had slashed at it, uh, but was able to be salvaged and placed back in the display. The bust of the Duc Orleans, though, uh, was trampled to pieces in the melee. So they didn't get that one back. The Bastille prison was stormed two days later, on July 14th, or the day before this episode goes out.
0: Is that what's happening?
1: Yeah, so there you go. We're celebrating Bastille Day today. Why? Because we've all liked the Tour de France, and they always have a good one on Bastille Day. They're going up, going
0: <coughs> I spent a night in a brothel with our dad <laughs> on Bastille Day.
1: See, everyone's got happy memories. <laughs> you yeah, me there, to see some fireworks? There was no
0: room <laughs> well, in the whole be. of this. It was a city, uh, a walled city, and there was there was no room. Like we were, we were riding around trying to find a hotel, anything. And then we, the only place we found, after some people said, oh yeah, there's some place up there, was, um, it was a, uh, <laughs> it was like two guys at the entrance, um, you know, like an alley yeah. that goes into this hotel. And you could pay by the hour
1: right, yeah, for the room. tells
0: yeah. you all you need to know. And just all night trying to sleep.
1: With the sound of... French businessman. Just coming and (laughs)
0: going. And coming and (laughs) going.
1: I see what you did there, and I liked it.
0: I don't like how this cat's looking at you, Joe. Well. Could you move the cat?
1: No, she's fine. She'll leave you. Philippe and Marie quickly realised that the revolutionaries had captured the imagination of not just the French public, but of people all around Europe. So they began exporting busts of the main protagonists, and later of those beheaded, complete with realistic gore, More than a few of these were shipped to Britain, where Marie was mentioned in the papers for the first time. Because she was helping to design these gory bits of memorabilia. While Marie had worked in Versailles for nearly a decade, Philippe decided to throw his lot in with the revolutionaries. He joined the National Guard and the Jacobin Club. And this resulted in Marie having to pretty much run the waxwork business on her own from this point. Because he's like, yes, I think you're going to win, so revolution... (laughs) Damn those people who used to pay for me to do everything. I'm pitching my wagon to you guys because you're here now and you have swords and I'm scared. It also left her in an awkward position, though, uh, because her personal attachment to the royal family had to be minimised as the waxworks that she was displaying would be taken as an indicator of her political leanings. Marie had to carefully judge the mood of the revolutionaries, deciding which faction was in the ascendancy at any given time and cater to their preferences or risk potentially violent suppression. So within the sort of revolutionaries themselves, there were different camps. So you had the more hardline revolutionaries who were, we need to get rid of the royal family completely. Um, and you get other ones going, we need to... to reform them. Yeah, reform the royal family. We need to reduce their powers and make them a bit like the British monarchy is now, just a figurehead. Uh, they like to believe. Yeah, and everything in between. She must have been... Even more stressed when, in April 1792, the guillotine, aka the regretful climb, aka the nation's razor, aka the widow, aka the silence mill, aka <laughs> the Goncourt prize for murderers, aka the paper trimmer, aka the
0: slitty neck
1: the timbers of justice <laughs> aka Charlotte's rocking chair don't know where that one came yeah. from or uh, my favorite one aka wet jimmy the patriotic shortener
0: right so <laughs> <clears throat> <laughs> there's only one of them names that people
1: actually used no apparently they were all um used as euphemisms for it
0: with aka before all yeah
1: them. I, I like my favourite's the patriotic shortener I, I think that's very nice but also the silence mill is very haunting. That sounds like it'd be a good title for a novel. Silence
0: mill. I bet it already is a novel or it, a graphic novel.
1: Oh, it could make a great graphic novel. No colours in it. It's all black and white. It all it's about is
0: <clears throat> it's a sawmill, but the power's out,
1: mm. oh, and it's a person just contemplating life. But he keeps. He's, he's still got. He's
0: still got mobile access, and he's getting all these orders in. <laughs> oh no! It's <laughs> a <For> planed pine. <laughs>
1: Yeah, the slogan, no, we're taking our business elsewhere. <laughs> no! <laughs> all my mill makes is silence. <clears throat> <clears throat> but yes, it was first introduced. A device to provide true equality for all citizens in a humane execution, where the head will be separated from the body in a fraction of a second. Though the first man to suffer this fate was a robber called Nicolas Jacques Pell- Pelletier who actually had to wait in prison for three months while the device was constructed and tested on corpses from a local morgue. So, as terrifying as it was for the people later on, you know, right in the middle of the terror, it was, you'd be at the kangaroo court in the morning, you'd be chucked into a holding pen, and in the afternoon, you'd be up, whip, gone. He was told this was going to happen to him, and then he had to sit in prison in Paris while they slowly constructed this thing, did the beta testing... (laughs) He probably could hear it going, Sink, dunk. Oh no, it's got stuck again. Oh shit. Throw some of the corpse <laughs> up, I think I know what I did wrong. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> For three months. It would eventually go on to dispatch over 10,000 political prisoners during the period of the revolution, known simply as the Terror.
0: That's horrible, Jeb.
1: 10,000, yeah. What,
0: in how many years?
1: It's just a couple of years. Mm. It was, you know, you were talking about dozens. When they had a day where they were going to do it, it was, they'd bring a cartload of people and they'd just one after the other. Whoop,
0: whoop, whoop. It's better than hanging, isn't it? It is the best way.
1: I mean, if you you could
0: choose a way of your own execution, that'd probably be it.
1: Apparently, I mean, a, a guillotine obviously didn't figure on this, but the best way to be killed if you don't want an accident to sort of draw out the suffering is firing squad in America. But I assume the hit rate of the guillotine was even better than that. Has to be. Yeah.
0: Cause Cause I mean... What... <clears throat> necks don't differ that much, really. <laughs> and you'd weight it to a point where it'd go through the thickest of necks. you oh, no, they had the massive man in the world. Massive
1: he would. He... rocks, basically. They screwed it into a massive rock. Their blade. So they are huge. Yeah.
0: So it doesn't matter what neck's underneath it. No, no,
1: no. Um, and I guess the only way it's going to malfunction is it's not going to drop at all. Because if it drops, it's killing you.
0: Even if the blade
1: falls off, yeah, that is rock it? is going to smush your head to. That'd be a good Nothing. way, wouldn't it? Head smusher.
0: Yeah, just between between two rocks, Isn't aka <laughs>
1: brain jam. <laughs> yeah,
0: brain flower.
1: Oh. oh, I like that you put a bit of beauty in it, though. No, I meant
0: flowers and the you oh, right, between you, two rocks.
1: See, I thought you meant sort of like you slammed the <clears> rocks <throat> and then when you pulled it back, the impression that the blood splatter had <laughs> left is like a... <laughs>
0: like you've pressed flowers. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Initially, though, the nobility was simply confined to prisons while the new revolutionary government decided what should be done with them. But the people of Paris were becoming impatient and on September the 2nd, 1791, one of these prisons was broken into and all of those inside were slaughtered. This included the Princess de Lambelle, who was tortured and mutilated in her cell for around four hours before she eventually died. Her body was hacked to pieces, and then her severed head was brought, by the still-bloody murderers, to Marie in her waxwork studio. This was the first death mask that Marie claims she was forced to make, directly from the blood-soaked head of a decapitated victim. Though there are no reports as to if she replicated the crude moustache that the revolutionaries had fashioned from Princess de Lambelle's pubic hair. Fucking hell. Mm. It would not be the last death mask that she would make.
0: And she's sort of straddled both worlds mm. perfectly at this point.
1: Well, yeah, they, they wanted... It was for publicity's sake. They were like, and here, for people who couldn't be at the execution, you could mass produce these death masks to say, well, these are the people who we've killed.
0: So is Louis the? Was it 16th? Or 16th. 15th? Yeah. Um, sorry. Is her, her sister, the one that Marie had started working for, Where she, she at this point?
1: Oh, we find out what happened to her, but she, she didn't escape. She's uh, in, she was... I would say she's in a prison. She's in a prison, probably, at this point. After the royal family were imprisoned, Marie wisely removed their models from display, realising that to offend the new regime could mean instant death. One artist who did not get this memo was German-born Paul Philidor who created controversy in a Magic Lantern show called Phantasmagoria, It's a good name, where he superimposed an image of Robespierre onto a devil, which is quite a strong political statement to make. It was only direct intervention from Philippe and Marie that kept him from going to the scaffold, and he decided it was about time to head across to the UK to perform in slightly less risky environments. Maria herself was arrested at one point and actually had her hair cut in preparation for an execution, should one be warranted. She was saved at the last by Philippe, who had been out of the country at the time of Marie's arrest. Oh. So there's some more psychological torture for you. It's like V for Vendetta. Yeah, shaving <laughs> your hair. Why, why do you need to cut off my hair? No reason. How, how wide would you say your neck is?
0: <laughs> Wouldn't. So obviously there's some reason why they shave your hair and that's beneficial for execution
1: i'm guessing it's just um, the
0: the foot i forgot any of the akas the
1: the silence mill yeah
0: but wouldn't it be easier carrying it afterwards if it's got hair yes and you've sort of got like awkwardly hold
1: i mean when i say they cut it short they just cut it off the neck so you could still have a quite a clump to hold it by right like your hair now would be fine it's just to give that space i think it was just i think it's a sort of um Back to the times when they did it with axes, so that it gave the uh, the axeman a clear target. Yeah, target to go for. Rather than if it's all mussed up with hair, it's like if you go too low, suddenly you're getting into the collarbone sort of, you know, uh, trapezium muscle sort of area.
0: They have no chance with those because mm. they're just shoulders and then head.
1: Yeah, where, where it, do... we're el- we'd need an elite level executioner because they've got a very small patch of neck to actually go for. But as well, if you go too high. Oh, you know in you're getting skull. your
0: head chopped f- eye level. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it wouldn't It wouldn't be a fun thing. You know, to... the
0: opposite of your man who just had his, his, his jaw removed. Yeah. You've got everything but your jaw removed. <laughs> 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 but you still got the low bit of the brainstem functioning. Oh, like, like
1: that chicken, that yeah, uh, yeah. that decapitated chicken that just kept getting fed and was just <laughs> running around. <laughs> He's working purely on that animal instinct now. Yeah. The higher mental faculties of the chicken, they have gone. (laughs) Whatever they were. Um, But sadly, Philippe died in mysterious circumstances in 1794. Marie suspected he had been poisoned by revolutionaries who had become convinced he was a royalist sympathiser. In his will, he left his entire estate to Marie. However, without his presence as a safety net, Marie felt that she had no choice other than to make death masks on behalf of the National Assembly of all the nobles who were executed. According to Marie, the moulds for these masks will be made almost immediately after death from the still warm and bloody heads. This traumatic duty included her former royal student, Elizabeth, who was executed on May the 10th, 1794. Shit. Apparently, she... Because she had this unshakable Christian belief, because she should have been a nun... It's reported that she insisted on being the last person from her cart to be executed, and before everyone went up, she said a prayer with them, blessed them. Don't know if she was able to do that.
0: She didn't have the powers for that.
1: No, well, she claimed the powers for that, and they said... That's all they ever do. Everybody from that cart went up, and not one of them sort of lost their nerve or their courage. Except her at the end. (laughs) Yeah, she went...
0: (laughs) She turned around to see who was going to bless her.
1: It's like, oh, shit. Now, she she apparently went with fortitude, but she she was about 30 when this happened. So she hadn't had a long life. As the fever of the revolution began to ebb, it was increasingly former revolutionary leaders that Marie was recreating in wax. Marie created a bust of Robespierre, complete with the damage from his unsuccessful suicide attempt with a pistol. And finally, on May 7th, 1795... Marie Grossholtz created a death mask from the freshly separated head of public prosecutor Fouquier-Tinville. This was the last death mask she created during the French Revolution.
0: But she's going to make more.
1: Well, did she make any? Because from the point at which I told you that Marie was invited to tutor the royal princess, the vast majority of the story is likely not to have been based, in fact. Because that's the story that Marie told. Although it's definitely true that Philippe died and left the business to Marie, there is no evidence she ever visited Versailles, let alone lived there for eight years, to the point that, you know, she's not mentioned in any documents. And you think if you had a live-in tutor, you know, Elizabeth was sort of keeping her own household accounts. She might pop up once or twice if you're bankrolling her. There is no evidence that she ever talked to a member of the royal family at all. There's no evidence that she was ever arrested. Because she claimed to have been in prison with various nobles and they checked the records for those prisons. Her name didn't pop up. Uh, And it was never proved that she was forced to make even a single death mask. Though it is possible that um, Marie and Philippe worked out an arrangement with the executioner for mutual benefit, she definitely wasn't forced to do it. Right. That was just a, well, if we can get a death mask of Robespierre, people are probably going to want to see that. So what's happening, Joe? What's happening is she's making up a bit of a a legend for herself, a compelling story that makes her into a celebrity just as much as the people that she's creating in wax. She's becoming a personality.
0: But she's really keeping... um, She's really knowledgeable of what's happening in the news.
1: Yeah, yeah, they had to be because they had to keep up with the news. And what she's doing is she's inserting herself into all of that stuff because she knows the value of branding.
0: So Philippe's doing it all. Is someone making these death masks?
1: Yeah, yeah, they're, they're making death masks. Uh, or they're making images of these people. They're saying they're death masks, but it could just be they're looking at portraits of these people, making something close to that and saying it's a death mask. Right. They're just trying to cash in on the fever because all those people who couldn't be at the executions, it's like, well, you couldn't be at the execution, but if you want to see the bloody head of whoever come down to our waxworks, we've got a perfect representation of it. fucking all right. Yeah. But she wasn't going to begin telling that story just yet because the following year, Marie got married to an engineer called Francois Tussaud. The couple were incompatible from the very beginning, a situation exacerbated by the fact that they started their married life in debt and Madame Tussaud quickly dispatched her husband to England to complete a tour with some of their waxworks as a means of both bringing in extra revenue and getting him as far away from her as physically possible. So what's in it for either of them? I'm not really sure. I think it's one of those where it was like a whirlwind romance and it was only after they'd got through the fever of that that she just went, oh my God, you're an idiot. And it wasn't that easy to get a divorce then. So she's like lumbered with him. She's like, well, do you know what? Go to England. (laughs) Take some of these. Go to England. And then I don't have to look at you. And I can pretend I'm still single. How's, how's that work for you, Francois? Are we okay? Good. But what she did notice from this sort of half-baked plan of just sending him over there was there were lots of enthusiastic reviews from the papers in England. They really liked what she was doing and they, they hoped that she would be sending more over in the future. The couple, like many before and since, tried to repair this obviously terrible relationship ...via the addition of children. The first, a daughter, lived only six months. Heartbroken at her death, Marie made a tiny death mask... ...which she would later display in her exhibitions. She did, however, also have two strapping sons... ...called Joseph and Francis. The latter being born in 1800... ...when Madame Tussaud was 38. When she was 40, she finally had to admit... ...that nothing was going to save her marriage. Looking for a way out, she was offered it... ...from an unlikely source the German showman that she and Philippe had helped to save, Paul Filiador. He suggested that she bring her waxworks to London as a supporting act for his own show. Madame Tussaud seeing a way to just leave her husband for an extended period of time. It's such
0: an easy act. You just place them when no one's there and then open the door to the crowd. That's all you have to do, isn't it? Well, Once you've got the skills of making waxwork, the performance
1: you, you haven't really got any part of. Well, the audience you don't that. have to have that. But Madame Tussaud, she wanted to. Alright. Yeah, she used almost all of her remaining finances to fund the transportation and travel to do the show with Phileador. Though in the spirit of saving money, she did have to leave her husband behind. She's like, I've got just enough. This is going to make a fortune, Francois, okay? But I can't afford your ticket. So me and the boys are going to go to England and you stay here. <laughs>
0: You stay here with all the, the wax works. Yeah, with
1: all, all the defective wax works. Yeah. Okay? You stay here in the, in the, <laughs> the cellar with all yeah. the half-made wax works, yeah. okay?
0: Do whatever you want. Just don't tell me.
1: <laughs> oh, God. I know you miss me. <laughs> They're anatomically correct. Don't yeah. worry. But while another French showman hit gold with his troupe of performing poodles... <laughs>
0: Fucking know performing poodles.
1: Yeah. Madame Tussaud found that the deal that she had signed with Philidor made it impossible for her to make any money for herself once her expenses had been covered especially considering there were already quite a few established waxworks in London and Philidor hadn't included her work in any of the advertising posters. So no one knew she was there, sort of exhibiting in the room next door to his phantasmagoria until they got there. And then he went, well, that's a bit odd. You know, a few people went for a shufti, but it wasn't, nobody knew that it was there. She also, at this point, couldn't speak a word of English, so she couldn't even drum up any interest. I, there's this random French woman shouting at me and trying to drag me into a side room I think I think there are some bodies in there <laughs> they're not moving is she killing people but Madame Tissot was also a very determined figure and she fell back on her methods of drumming up trade in Paris quickly and accurately modelling people from current affairs. In this case it was the would-be regicide Colonel Edward Despard who was executed in 1803 so she quickly whipped up uh, a, a model of this guy. It's stuck it on another body. Yeah, stuck it on one of her ready bodies. Put it in some, you know, bought a bit of English clothing from the local, um, you know, shop. Yeah, English clothes shop. Slapped the it Abidashery. on. Kardashery. Yeah. Hab- no, she didn't. I don't think she ran the clothes up herself. I think she bought those off the peg. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you can't be an expert at everything, Jack. Come on. But it worked because it started to get some word of mouth going I don't know what a haberdashery is I thought it's, it was where you, it's where you buy um, the raw materials Yeah, so you right. wouldn't buy completed clothes in a haberdasher's and it's, as far as I understand it it's, it's all the uh, accoutrements as well so like buttons and ribbons and lace you can get from there but...
0: have zips been invented? velcro?
1: velcro no, zips I don't think so
0: Oh, toggle things
1: you, pr- you definitely had a toggle at this point all right, that's get... all the fastenings <laughs> I know. <laughs> so she's finally getting some word of mouth going. And like, bloody hell, she whipped that up quick. Yeah. She's obviously got some talent. She's got popper pants. Yeah. So she's starting to get a few more people through the door. It's looking like she's going to turn the ship around. Then Philidor announced that they were moving the show to Edinburgh.
0: Right.
1: And because of the contract she'd signed, she had to leave. Just as she was starting to look like she might break evening in London. He's like, right, now you need to buy a train ticket to Edinburgh. You need to transport all this stuff to Edinburgh. We're going to Edinburgh because he didn't like that she was starting to get a few more people going to her exhibit than he was to his. What's his thing? He does the phantasmagoria, so it's um, magic lantern. So it's like very, very early um, projections and almost moving pictures. Right. Precursor to that. Madame Tussaud had barely had a chance to unpack in Edinburgh before France and England redeclared war. This time it was the Napoleonic War. And it meant that all travel for foreign aliens was severely restricted. In practical terms, it meant that Madame Tussaud was now stuck in the British Isles for the foreseeable.
0: So wherever you are, you, you can't move.
1: Yeah, they're like, well, now we have this French woman who she's, she's... could be a spy. So we can't let her go back to France until we've sorted out this war. So she was just, well, you're staying with us now. No so, harm. Yeah.
0: So, Before telephones and like mass communication. But if she can't go and tell him with a, with a face, <laughs> she's, in, she's no risk to us.
1: Yeah. Unperturbed, Madame Tussaud set up in a little salon on Thistle Street in Edinburgh with a landlady who could also act as her interpreter and English teacher. The discerning people of Edinburgh made the show a success and Madame Tussaud was well on her way to becoming able to buy her way out of her contract with Phileador who she probably wished she had left to his fate in Paris all those years ago, because he was gouging her for most of her profits, even though his show was not doing particularly well because of the contract she'd signed in desperation. He was like, well, I'll just take it out of your court. You know, we'll pull what we've made now, and I'll take half. And she's like, shit. And because he was getting really jealous, and it was looking like, you know... So it's been years. We're talking about this is over the course of a year. Yeah. Right, so... she started out in London. Mister Two Swords is, um... yeah, he's he's just in France. He's running the and old. She's
0: bringing the kids with her. Yeah, yeah.
1: Right. He's running the old waxworks, and he's slowly running it into the ground. Essentially, she's she's abandoned him. He just hasn't figured it out yet. Is what's happened really? But Philidor, he's seen that she's doing really well again. His show isn't drumming up the excitement that he thought it would. So he again got a bit of a huff and said, "No, we're going to Glasgow." Right. We're moving the show again. We're moving it to Glasgow and she's like, "But I've got bookings for weeks. People want to come down." Said, no, Glasgow. Again, Madame Tissaud was well on her way to establishing herself in Glasgow uh, and again Philidor announced that they needed to move. It's every time. Yeah. Uh how long is this fucking contract? It was uh I believe it was till Death. he'd made a certain amount of money. So she had to buy her way out of this contract basically. Right. He it, it basically sounded it like, I'm going to help you set this up um, because I know uh, all the agents in Britain, I've got the contacts, so I'm going to help you set it up during this first tour. And once you've paid me this sum of money from your earnings, then you can go off and do your own thing. But every time she was starting to get some momentum and thinking, I- I'm going to be able to buy my way out of this, she was like, right, Edinburgh, they don't get it. Let's go to Glasgow. And they went to Glasgow and everyone fell in love with Madame Tussaud again because she was starting to tell her story about how she'd been front and centre oh, so at the revolution.
0: That, she's figuring all that fiction out.
1: Yeah, and she's talking about how she was friends with the king and she listened into to conversations and how she met Robespierre and all of this stuff. And he went, Scottish people are stupid. We're going to Dublin. Oh, so he took her across to Ireland but no matter the location, Madame Tissaud was outperforming Philidor, and when Ireland proved just as humiliating for him as Scotland and England had, he finally admitted defeat and let Madame Tissaud out of her contract so that she could set up on her own and enjoy 100% of her profits.
0: So where is she Is she staying in Dublin or moving again? She's back to London.
1: No, she was, um, from this point, she was just a travelling show. Oh, Right. Because by the time the Napoleonic Wars ended in 1815, her travelling show was well established in the British Isles. Yeah,
0: because he, he he taught it her yeah. by accident.
1: <laughs> and she'd gone, actually, it's it's great. I can do better than you. Everywhere we go, I'm making better contacts. and I'm Because he would do stupid things like he, he felt you've got to make, you know, you've got to spend money to make money. So he would book out venues that he really had no right to be booking out because he wasn't that popular in the hopes that, oh, if people see that I've booked such and such a a theatre, they'll think I'm really high class. And all he was doing was all of his profits were going on paying. Right, the overheads. Yeah. Whereas she was like, well, I think my work speaks for itself, so I can book any old front room in anyone's house. And people will come. Word of mouth will spread, and I'll be filling that for minimal outlay. And she got really good at it, and she started to travel all through all of the counties. She didn't just focus on the capitals. She was... Every major city she'd hit up. She learned to speak English well. She crafted her persona. Um, and she started to add other stories. Things that couldn't possibly have been true, like that she had been invited by Napoleon's wife, with whom she had shared a jail cell during the terror. She added that bit in. To do a living cast of Napoleon's face. Mm. Making her wax work the best way for regular Brits to get a good look at the man who had nearly invaded the country. She never met Napoleon. But she had a bust of him, which she claimed she'd, you know, done the whole thing with the straws out of his nose and layering the plaster of Paris on the Emperor of France's face. Yeah. And the British people went, oh, fair enough. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Because she got a convincing story.
1: Yeah, Legitimate. I mean, you did He's have French. a chance. He's French. Yeah. You used to live in Versailles. Apparently everybody knew who you were. It's so, oh, yeah, Marie. Yeah, we know Marie. She's cool. It was a good job she was reinventing herself in the UK as back in Paris her husband had finally run the original waxworks into the ground and had signed everything that remained over to creditors so there was no home to go back to anymore all of the wax had been melted down and was now making cheap candles with no reason to return home Madame Sussaud toured the country for 33 years with her two sons but definitely not her husband who she never saw again She was constantly adapting to the changing parade of celebrities and criminals to keep her show fresh and relevant, and her reputation for quality developed to the point that she was able to slowly save her profits to secure the future of her two children. It was at the age of 73 in 1835 that Madame Tussaud finally set up a permanent home for her waxworks in Baker Street, London, complete with the now iconic Chamber of Horrors. And one of her sons, um, this was shortly before her death, I believe. Went out and bought one of the original guillotine blades, which was displayed in the Chamber of Horrors. I don't know if they still own it. I've
0: never seen. I've never been. Mm. I've never been to Madame Tussauds. Any at all? Any, any.
1: Well, you probably go after this. She wrote her memoirs full of the lies that cemented her legacy. Do her kids believe the stories? Oh no, they know it? it's they know they it's know bullshit, it. but it's they also know that it is the patter. It is one of the things that gets punters through the door. Is her. And in 1842, she created a waxwork of herself that still stands at the door of the exhibit to this day. Madame Tussaud died in her sleep at the age of 88. Or did she? In 1850. Oh. While deep in the planning stages of a proposed expansion to take advantage of the upcoming Great Exhibition. I'll
0: come full circle. Mm.
1: Her sons took over the running of the exhibition and her grandsons after that. Today, there are branches of Madame Tussauds across the world, though the original London site still contains not only some of her original creations, but also some by her mentor and surrogate father, Philippe Curtius, which is beautiful.
0: I think, what, 250 years?
1: Yeah. And they're still... I don't know that they have them out on display all the time, but they're still there in storage. And that is the story of Madame Tussauds. to celebrate Bastille Day somebody who came to be you know it's something that everybody who comes to London has on their list of quintessential things to do when visiting London is go to Madame Tussauds
0: yeah London Dungeons
1: yeah Houses of Parliament if you want Buckingham Palace we'll go there the Tower of London go and look at the show. and others (laughs) and other buildings (laughs) go to the Tate Modern that's it, isn't it? Look at the free exhibits. Contemplate the paid <laughs> exhibits. Then decide that you don't have enough time. Yeah. Go to Pret-a-Manger. <laughs> Overpriced lunch. Try and find the V&A museum. <laughs> Fail to find the V&A museum. <laughs> Go to Pret-a-Manger again. <laughs> I'm just describing my last trip to London. Is that it? Yeah. Where we decided we could walk... <laughs> quite because when you're used to a city like Lancaster you assume that all cities are, are on a similar scale it's
0: different isn't it
1: yeah and you start walking across London and then you're like oh my god we've actually covered this tiny tiny little section of the map and I don't know where we are now mm-hmm. and then you just give up and get on the uh, the underground but yes the source for this burger lovely, relish. lovely French Anglo French tale horseradish waxing mythical the life and legend of madame tussaud by kate berridge so there you go thanks it was a book by it i don't know about buy it there are quite a few actually there are quite and a few it. biographies of um madame tussaud i just went for the one that was the most recent
0: and had the fewest pages
1: no actually had unfortunately, most pictures remarkably few pictures you think this is one of those books that will benefit from a lot of pictures? It would be a heavy <clears> picture book, <throat> would it? Like a coffee table book more than anything. Picture says
0: a thousand words, Joe. Mm. That's why I don't...
1: Read. read. <laughs> That's why I learnt never to read. But while another French showman hit gold with his... Droop- with his... But while another French showman hit gold with his troop of... Por- fucking hell. Porpoises. A troop of porpoises. It's better. But while another French showman hit gold with his troop of. (laughs) Wow! Practice it. No. (laughs) (laughs) No. No, I'm going
0: to struggle through this four more times.
1: Hi there, it's Emma, Chief Organiser at Consistently Eccentric. Here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. How fancy. You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week.